Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to another episode of New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and joining me today is Ita Michaeli to talk about his new book, The Defender. Ita's book is a 600-page epic which charts the long and compelling history of the Chicago Defender, one of the most influential black periodicals of the 20th century. Drawing on dozens of interviews and extensive archival research, Ita documents the impact of publisher Robert S. Abbott, columnists such as Ida B. Wells and Langston Hughes, and hundreds of other journalists and editors who contributed to the legendary newspaper's development. Ita Michaeli is an award-winning author, publisher, and journalist based in Chicago. During the 1990s, he worked as a copy editor and investigative reporter for the Chicago Defender. He is currently the executive director of We The People Media, and is also working on a new book project. So joining me now is Ita Michaeli. Um, how are you doing today, Ita? I'm doing great, James. Okay, good stuff. So we're going to talk about your new book today, um, The Defender, an incredibly dense, incredibly rich history of the Chicago Defender um, over, I think, six, nearly nearly 640 pages long. Um, mm-hmm. It's obviously kind of this, this work of love. Um, <laughs> so before we get into that, let's just uh, talk a little bit um, about yourself so our listeners sure. um, have a chance to find out a little bit more about you. Um, so if you could say um, what your background is uh, and how you came to, to uh, write this, this book. Sure. So I was um, raised in Rochester, New York, which is a town in upstate New York, some hours away from New York City, closer to Buffalo um, uh, on Lake Ontario. And I originally came to Chicago um, as a student at the University of Chicago. I graduated in 1989 with a degree in English and came to work at the Chicago Defender newspaper um, uh, shortly thereafter, um, uh, first as a copy editor and later as an investigative reporter. Um, Your listeners should also know that I'm a a white Jewish guy, and of course the Defender is the historic African-American-owned newspaper in the city. I have to be honest that I didn't know anything about the Defender or its storied role in the city, or really about race in America, which I honestly thought was an issue which had been largely dealt with in the civil rights era. So you start working, um, when, when do you start working for The Defender, and, and how long is it that you're, you're working there before you leave? So I worked at The Defender from 1991 to 1996. I was a copy editor there for about the first um, uh, 18 months. And then I spent the balance of the time as an investigative reporter fo- focusing largely on police issues and public housing. And I left the Defender in 1996 to start a magazine called The Residence Journal, which is uh, which was a, a magazine written for and by public housing residents in the city. Uh, Public housing in Chicago, uh, your listeners may or may not know, was largely a system of 
uh, high-rise developments in different parts of the city, the overwhelming majority of the residents were African-American, although it was quite a diverse population uh, uh, um, as well. Uh, Even though the majority of the residents were African-American, the public housing population included significant numbers of other folks. So I retained a connection both with the African-American community and with the people that I worked with at the Defender during my time at the um, uh, Residence Journal. And I actually just left the Residence Journal um, or, or shut down the Residence Journal. It was a nonprofit organization that we started to run it. Um, and I shut that down last summer just as the Defender book was about to come out. Um, so there is a connection between all these things. Um, how long has this book been kind of circulating uh, in your mind as a project? And how long has it kind of taken um, to actually write it if you if you can put a, a time frame on it? Yeah. So ever since I worked at The Defender, uh, which for me was really a transformative experience, um, I, I felt that the newspaper deserved a a, a book. I was really awakened to the realities of race in America and the pivotal role that African-Americans in Chicago had played in American politics and in American um, uh, culture as well um, through my time at The Defender. And I just felt very strongly that it needed some sort of book. It took many years until I found an uh, uh, an agent and then later a publisher who, who would believe in, in this idea. And I have to say that the election of President Obama in 2008 was the moment in which the significance of uh, Chicago's uh, political enterprise within the African-American community became apparent to everybody. So it, it was something that helped me um, get the book uh, out as well. Um, uh, so it's, yeah, so it, it took, it took a long time for this idea to, to, to gestate as a, a pure history of the newspaper. Um, there had never been a comprehensive history of the Chicago Defender before, although there had been memoirs written by former staffers and there had been a biography of Robert Abbott, the founder of the Defender going back to 1955, um, so there was there was quite a bit of of academic work as well on the newspaper, but there had never been a comprehensive history of the newspaper. And in the end, I really felt that that was what would be the best way to convey the experience that I had in 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 re-understanding or in understanding um, the truth about American um, uh, race relations. Um, and just before we start talking specifically about the yeah. Defender, um, if you could just say a little bit about your use of sources. So um, you've obviously drawn very, very heavily on archival sources, um, whether that's at uh, Vivian Harsh or other Chicago Public Library yeah. or other collections, and then also um, extensive interviews uh, with um, you know, both former and continuing staffers. Um, so if you could just say a little bit about... Uh, both your use of archives and then your use of interview as and how you kind of um, use those two sources within the text. Yeah. So, um, well, the archives, um, you know, the, the, the Abbott Sengstack family archives 
which is a larger collection, I'm told, than the equivalent archives of the Hearst or Pulitzer families, um, are, as you say, uh, located at the Vivian Harsh collection um, in the uh, um, uh, uh, Carter G. Woodson Regional Library at 95th Street in Halstead in Chicago. It is a beautiful library, um, but I have to say it's a resource that's really underappreciated both within the city and in the United States generally. Um, to me, it is an, an amazing treasure trove of which the Abbott Sengstack family archives are a crown jewel. Um, and they are, I have to say, uh, lovingly cared for by the archivists there um, who have uh, really just a, a, a uh, bare bones reading room to offer researchers. But it is a place that really transforms into a magical um, uh, location when you're able to um, uh, sit there and, and, you know, access these, the, the incredible items that they have there, not just the, the, um, the Abbott Sengstack family archives, but many other collections that they have, which are, are just absolutely incredible. Um, as you say, I also did interview um, uh, many, many former, uh, defender staffers uh, from the era that I, uh, from the time I worked at the Defender, as well as from other eras, um, and that was great. Some of them have since passed away, very sadly. Um, uh, Charles Davis, who was um, whose whose era really goes back uh, almost to Robert Abbott's time, um, uh, passed away at, at the age of uh, 96, I believe. Um, uh, and uh, Bob McClory, a uh, white man who left, uh, who, who became a Defender staffer shortly after he left the priesthood. Um, and had a very interesting experience and, and time there. Both, both Charles Davis and Bob McClory have sadly passed away since, since uh I interviewed them. Um, so I, I feel very privileged to have those um, those memories and to have included them in the book that way. They, of course, you know, those interviews both gave me um, priceless uh, uh, perspective on, on various moments and, and uh, issues at the newspaper. Uh, you mentioned the Robert Abbott, um, yeah. who really is kind of the, the id of the paper. Um, and he is the the founder. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about Abbott. So, um, if you can give listeners a sense of um, his background um, prior to starting the Defender, and then his reasons for for wanting to start this newspaper in the kind of early twentieth century. Yeah, uh, well, Robert Abbott is is really someone with a remarkable background. Um, someone who, um, uh, not of great wealth or from a prominent family, but with with currents of of culture and history running through his his uh, veins and his and his life that that really propelled him um, uh, uh, in quite amazing directions and 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 quite an amazing distance. He was born just after the Civil War um, on one of the islands uh, off the coast of the Carolinas. Which which has a a culture very very closely connected to the 
the African culture, one that was not completely severed by, by the horrors of slavery. Um, and he was born to a woman who um, uh, married into the, in the Abbott family. Um, uh, Robert Abbott's mother was, was, uh, really had very little support from the Abbott family, actually. And uh, Robert Abbott's biological father died. Uh, even, uh, he may not have even ever seen uh, his son. Um, and he died definitely before Robert Abbott was one year old. But Robert Abbott's mother um, then went to the mainland and married a man with with really a remarkable uh, background. He was a um, man of both African and German heritage whose father had been a German sailor and whose mother had been a slave uh, purchased by this German sailor. Uh, this man, the Reverend Sengstack, uh, or the, the future Reverend Sengstack, um, had been raised in Germany. His father, the, the sailor, had had uh, placed, had re- raised him in Germany to keep his son away from from um, be- perhaps becoming a slave or from the horrors of of what was just average um, uh, uh, conditions for for people of mixed race in in the American South at that time. But um, uh, uh, Mr. Sengstack, Herr Sengstack, um, uh, came to uh, uh, the South to uh, after the Civil War. The sailor, uh, his German father, had died um, uh, during the Civil War, and, and the son came to investigate what had become of his father's property. And during this time, he met Robert Abbott's mother and fell in love and adopted Robert Abbott as his son. Um, and treated him really not just as his as his son, but but as as uh, a, a child who was prized for his intellect and ability and ambition. All characteristics which, um, uh, when cultivated by by this man who became a minister, a Congregationalist minister, and, and went by Reverend Sangstack afterwards. Uh, when Reverend, the Reverend Sengstack really cultivated these qualities in young Robert Abbott, and they would really give him a reserve of confidence that he would uh, carry with him his whole life, which was very important because Robert Abbott was uh, short, he was roly-poly, and he had a dark complexion at a time that complexion was important even to other African Americans. So in other words, here's someone from... Um, uh, a background of, of rural poverty. He's raised in, in, in Savannah, in the outskirts of Savannah, Georgia. And um, he has a dark complexion. He's short and kind of pudgy. There are a lot of reasons for him to be overlooked, but it's his force of personality that propels him um, uh, through life. And Robert Abbott um, uh, goes to uh, Hampton Institute. He basically writes his his own um, writes this very beautiful letter uh, to the director of Hampton, and and in which he basically a single run on sentence in which he says, "I will come and uh, I would like to come and be a student at your university, and I will do anything to get there, and I will work my way through. I will do anything to be a part of your university." Very moving letter written in beautiful penmanship, a single run on sentence, uh, a beautiful script. Uh, and Robert Abbott uh, comes to the Hampton Institute, which is then, um, as it is now, one of the premier African-American 
educational institutions. This is the the alma mater of Booker T. Washington, who was just a few years ahead of Robert Abbott um, and many other intellectual luminaries. And Robert Abbott, um, as he arrives at Hampton, receives a prize position, uh, position because he has this uh, beautiful tenor voice and a musical ability that has been um, trained by his uh, Gula relatives in the, in the Sea Islands, as well as the folks in Savannah. He's got just these beautiful um, uh, musical traditions really directly from Africa that, uh, that take him into the Hampton Quartet. And as a member of the Hampton Quartet, he's, he's able to travel. The, this is, of course, before the era of recorded music and before the, the era of, uh, of uh, amplified music, even. So Robert Abbott is traveling the country and is immensely popular. He's offered a scholarship by Walter Domroche in New York City. Walter Domroche would go on to found um, uh, Juilliard. Um, uh, uh, he's in, in Chicago... Uh, he's part of the 1893 World's Fair. Now, this is a great uh, position of honor where the Hampton Quartet is allowed to perform on the White City in the fairgrounds. Even um, very talented musicians like Scott Joplin and W.C. Handy are not able to uh, uh, to find any venues to perform in Chicago. Uh, but Abbott has special access to the World's Fair, and he's able to be a part of not just the festivities and not just the great um, conclave of, of people from all over the world, but even more significantly, he's part of a gathering of African-American intellectuals, a whole new generation of activists and, um, uh, and attorneys and young politicians and, and poets um, who are there under the auspices of, of Frederick Douglass, the great uh, emancipator, uh, friend of, of the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln, the, the, the escaped slave himself, um, who's 75 years old and still vital, still um, uh, the spokesperson, the preeminent spokesperson for African-Americans. And he's the master of the Haitian pavilion at the World's Fair. And he gathers together all these young uh, uh, future leaders, uh, James Weldon Johnson, who goes on to, to lead the, the, double, the NAACP, uh, Ida, Ida B. Wells, the investigative reporter, is is a mentee of his. Um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar uh, does a, a reading um, that's been commissioned by by Frederick Douglass. Uh, uh, you know, he would go on to become the first nationally known African American poet. Um, and Robert Abbott is there too, um, as this young singer, as a student at Hampton, and he's deeply influenced by Frederick Douglass, by the people that he meets. And by Chicago, which he sees has this history as a place to strike back against uh, Jim Crow. Um, uh, it's a place where where that had been known as the sink a sinkhole of abolition um, during uh, before the Civil War. So it's got a history of of resistance to to racism and, and segregation and being a base for African Americans. It takes Robert Abbott some years to make it to Chicago. Um, uh, even after the World's Fair, and he still has a very tough time for a number of years, even after founding the Chicago Defender. Um, at Hampton, he'd really learned the printing trade, but the unions in Chicago discriminated. So it was um, uh, quite difficult for him to, uh, to, to make ends meet. 
Um, and even he, he went to law school. He graduated um, uh, the only African-American in his class. But here his complexion, his Georgia accent and his general appearance worked against him practicing as an attorney. Um, so he really went uh, hungry and, and impoverished for years and then l- landed on the idea of launching a newspaper to strike back against the South and Jim Crow. But here, too, faced a lot of resistance because he was trying to use modern newspaper techniques, doing things like um, use headlines and dividing sections up into news and features and editorial and sports and children's section, women's section sections. All of these were, were new innovations at a time that newspapers were really just uh, pages with uh, columns um, with uh, uh, headlines that were all the, the same size and, and stories arranged for uh, uh, their uh, ability to fit on the page rather than some sort of thematic order. So Abbott was doing these very remarkable things and people did not catch on right away and actually saw his efforts to to get readers as somewhat um, uh, 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 gauche. Um, uh, and it took a number of years before the newspaper really caught on. And when it did, it really caught on not just with the African-American community in Chicago, but with African-Americans around the country. And this was because Robert Abbott, um, his vision for a modern newspaper was something that inspired first uh, a man named Frank Fay Young, who was a dining car porter, uh, a dining car waiter, uh, a man who worked on the train lines uh, and collected newspapers from all the trains um, that he worked on, brought those papers. Uh, Fay Young had, had um, uh, ambitions to um, uh, become a journalist, and he brought, he met Robert Abbott was inspired by Robert Abbott's vision and brought newspapers back to the Defender's office, which I should say at this time was really Robert Abbott's landlady's dining room. Robert Abbott could not afford to have uh, an office in the early years of the Defender, which we're now talking about 1905 uh, was when he started the newspaper. Um, and so 12 years after the World's Fair, and here, uh, uh, even though he couldn't afford an office, his landlady, Mrs. Henrietta Lee, uh, adored Robert Abbott, believed in his vision, and volunteered her dining room as the Defender's first newsroom. And her apartment would stay the Defender's newsroom for the first 20 years of the newspaper's existence. And Frank Fay Young, the dining car uh, waiter, brought newspapers back to this dining room where he and Robert Abbott would... Uh, cut out articles, which would then become, uh, uh, they would rewrite from an African-American perspective. Um, this was their wire service. Faye Young would then go, would, then went back out onto the rails where he talked to his fellow porters and train workers uh, about this newspaper that he was working for, convinced them not just to contribute articles themselves, but also to help distribute the newspaper by selling subscriptions and by finding distributors all over the country. So it was really in this kind of organic grassroots way that the Defender by, let's say, 1912 had become a national communications vehicle for African-Americans. And it was the fearlessness with which Robert Abbott went after lynching and other kinds of of, uh, racist atrocities in the South that earned Robert Abbott and the Defender this great reputation, which continued to 
to increase the newspaper's circulation and built up the newspaper's credibility until we get to the era of the Great Migration. So let's let's talk about the defenders' role in the in the Great Migration. Um, sure. And you kind of ex- expand on the argument that the previous um, writers have, have made, which is essentially a kind of uh, reciprocal argument where you have the defender, um, the influence of the defender, particularly in the South, um, kind of catalyzing that shift and that incredible expansion of the African-American population within Chicago, which in turn bolsters the defend, uh, defender's own standing and own reputation as kind of the world's greatest weekly. Yeah. So Robert Abbott did not initially support the Great Migration or migration from the South to the North. World War I radically changed the scenario for employment in the United States. The number of immigrants coming to the United States from Europe dried up, of course. Some immigrants even returned to Austro-Hungary, Russia, um, Uh, France or England or or other countries involved in the conflict um, uh, from the United States. So there was even a loss of of people from the labor pool. African-Americans then were the only workers available for what was an increasing demand at the same time for American um, manufactured goods and foodstuffs, which were exactly what, what Chicago specialized in. That said, Robert Abbott even though uh, unions and employers lowered their barriers and were anxious to have African-American workers, Robert Abbott didn't see the point of coming to Chicago when there were jobs available in Atlanta and Birmingham um, just the same. What changed his mind was when he saw that um, in one report, stevedores in the port of Jacksonville, Florida, disappeared um, uh, en masse Uh, from the port in Jacksonville um, overnight. They'd been recruited to go work at a port in New Jersey, in Newark, and um, uh, where wages were better and conditions were better. And and with the support of their families, they decided to leave. But fearing what the response would be of their employers, they decided to all leave at once and in secret. And when that happened, suddenly the port in Jacksonville was was, uh, imperiled. Uh, uh, the managers of the stevedores, the white managers of the stevedores, uh, who were all African-American, did not have the same skill set. And they were not able to either do the work themselves or quickly train a new staff to um, uh, uh, to replace them. So when Robert Abbott saw this, that's when he realized, this is the summer of 1916, fall of 1916, that's when Robert Abbott realized that the migration could hurt the Jim Crow South, when he saw that Southern newspapers, which until that point had really been a propaganda vehicle to maintain segregation. I mean, they had, the Defender was in many ways born as an antidote to that kind of propaganda in that day, the Southern white owned newspapers tended to create um, uh, uh, implausible excuses for various atrocities. such as, as lynching. In many cases, Southern newspapers abetted lynching directly, such as, as um, printing directions and, and times for their readers, saying, in other words, there will be a lynching at this location at this time. Don't be late. So Robert Abbott, in many ways, was responding to Southern newspapers throughout 
his um, efforts at the Defender. And when he saw that these Southern white newspapers who had just a few years earlier been calling for the expulsion of African-Americans, or as I said, been justifying various atrocities against African-Americans, now are suddenly demanding that African-Americans be treated well and are are starting to be um, uh, introspective in terms of the the uh, the way that African Americans have been mistreated in the South. Robert Abbott was was uh, gr- uh, number one. He was greatly entertained, but he was also uh, 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 very much anxious to use this situation in which the best workers of the South were departing from uh, uh, and and leaving the the South in a very bad situation. Um, he was anxious to use this to the advantage of African-Americans, essentially as leverage to bargain for better uh, treatment from the South. So that shifted the Defender's line editorially. In terms of the news coverage, the news pages always reported accurately on conditions within Chicago as they did in the South. So that when the Defender reported on, for example, efforts to segregate Chicago's schools. Chicago's schools were not segregated initially, but the Defender, uh, but but uh, the Chicago Tribune um, had made some efforts to support people that wanted the schools in Chicago to be segregated. The Defender took on the Tribune as well as those people that wanted the Chicago uh, schools to be segregated and printed though and 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 so that the the challenging of of the people who wanted segregation took place on the editorial page whereas the reporting on these efforts um, that they were taking place took paid took place on the news pages and similarly the atrocities that were taking place in the south would be reported on uh, in the news pages whereas the editorial would editorial page would say this is terrible and we demand that the federal government um, and other uh, appropriate agencies take action so in that sense when the defender began to report began to shift its editorial line to say people should come to the north because it will strike uh, back against the, the 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 jim crow system the readers believed the newspaper and trusted the newspaper because the newspaper wasn't sugarcoating the realities of life in chicago on the news pages you see what i'm saying that there was this um, very uh, deliberate effort to to um, uh, provide accurate information on the one hand, but say that that regardless of 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 uh, uh, how tough it is, there is a there is a distinct um, uh, 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 advantage in in a political sense to the the uh, migration to Chicago as well. Um, and it, that 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 trust that existed with with um, uh, uh, with the newspaper was essential to that first wave of the Great Migration. Chicago's population, African American population, doubled during uh, the years during the, just the last few years of World War One, from around fifty thousand to around a hundred thousand, and many more tens of thousands of African Americans came through Chicago as a result of the Defender to create African-American communities in other parts of the Midwest, everywhere from um, uh, Milwaukee to Detroit, 
uh, to Rockford, Illinois, uh, all of these communities, Gary, Indiana, and many, many others have African-American communities because of the defender's role in creating that first wave of the Great Migration to Chicago and the Midwest. Um, and that... Uh... That sense of building community from the Defender would came not just editorially, but also through um, endeavours such as the Billiken Club or the Parade. Um, so, if if you could say a little bit about um, what Abbott intended to do with the Bud Billiken Parade and picnic, um, and how that was kind of either an extension or a kind of supplement to um, the editorial ambitions of the Defender. Sure. Um, as the migrants came to Chicago, Robert Abbott felt responsible for them as um, a, uh, a civic leader, as well as, as the publisher of the newspaper, which had attracted many of them. So he worked with other African-American leaders to begin to create institutions. Now, this is a situation in which other communities, immigrant communities, largely had uh, resources, some of them public resources, that were being deployed. But African Americans were more or less left to their own uh, the devices and those uh, institutions which they could create themselves. So as the Urban League and other groups begin to form to help the migrants find housing and find employment and get adjusted generally to city life, Robert Abbott is also thinking through what he can do for the migrants and in particular for the children who um, many of the young people um, um, uh, uh, don't uh, who don't have, as I, as I mentioned, much in the way of recreational activities or 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 much outside of, of the public school system, um, which is itself got its deficits. Um, Robert Abbott is thinking how he can create some some uh, services and and opportunities for them as well. He knows the young many young people himself because he employs them as as newsboys for uh, the Defender and newsboys and newsgirls too. Um, and he begins to uh, appeal to them, of course, at first through the newspaper, through the 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 Billiken page of the newspaper, which is a um, the Billiken, uh, there's a lot of stories about what the Billiken, uh, how it began, uh, but the Billiken really was a curio that was manufactured in the United States, a kind of good luck charm, like a Cupid doll that, that originated in the early years of the 20th century um, and then kind of faded from, uh, you know, like, I don't know, uh, uh, your listeners might have like, uh, uh, I've heard of a pet rock or a, um, uh, what, what would be more current, like a, um, a, chi, uh, 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 a Chia Pet or a, uh, there are various kind of curio good luck charms that, that were very popular at that time. And uh, the Billiken was one of them. It faded kind of from public, um, uh, from popularity uh, uh, by uh, the 1920s, but there were still many of them around. And one day, Robert Abbott, or Robert Abbott's uh, editor, uh, uh, plucked uh, uh, one of these from an editor's desk, thinking of how to create a a, a children's section for the newspaper. And um, Bud Billiken, a character, was born. 
And shortly after that, Robert Abbott conceived of, of, of various activities that could support the, the, the Billiken page in the newspaper, which is becoming very popular. They started doing parades and activities. At first, this was done during the wintertime, which did not end up being a great idea given Chicago's harsh winters. And eventually they settled on doing an annual Billiken parade um, the, in, in August in, in Chicago, a back-to-school parade, uh, which became immensely popular and which continues today. And it's a parade that has attracted African-American celebrities and luminaries and, very importantly, uh, political leaders, both white and black, who understand that Chicago's African-American electorate is, um, uh, is an essential uh, uh, component of a... Uh, of, of, of victory when it comes to um, uh, politics, not just in Illinois, but as, as Illinois is often the key to a national coalition. So it's been uh, the Billiken Parade is, has been uh, a venue for politicians to um, uh, uh, to reach out to this crucial uh, electorate uh, now for, for decades and decades. So by the 1930s, um, yeah. the Defender is established itself as one of if not the most important or certainly most popular um black newspaper in the country um but by this point robert abbott he's not a young man anymore um by the 30s he's into his his early 60s um mm. so is he uh thinking about retirement is he planning for his um successor is he still active in the kind of day-to-day running of the newspaper um how does that uh how does his role change if it does change um in the lead up to his death in 1940 well he is definitely beginning uh, robert abbott's health has has been in in sharp decline since his 50s with a liver ailment that today would be treated fairly easily um known as uh, it's it's known as then as bright's disease um although it's really um a constellation of liver ailments as is the way that it would be looked at today. Um, all of which are, are treated fairly, um, uh, uh, easily or regularly. So Robert Abbott's health is in decline at the time. He is also very loyal and, uh, feels very much as the patriarch of the large, um, Sengstack family of which, uh, which is descended from his, his mother and the Reverend Sengstack. Um, uh, uh, the Reverend Stankstack and his mother had, uh, eight children, um, and, and there are many descendants from that, from that line. And Robert Abbott is, is, and they're mainly in Georgia at this time. And Robert Abbott has become wealthy and powerful, um, with the, the growth of the newspaper. And I mean, he's sought after by Republican, uh, uh, presidential candidates regularly, um, and uh, he feels like he really must uh, uh, use this power and influence to bring up his entire family. And in some cases, literally bring them up from Georgia to Chicago. One of the um, young men in, in, in the family is, is the most promising of, of, uh, of, uh, of the descendants um, uh, as, a, as a potential successor is, is a young man named uh, John Sengstack. Um, 
who is a student at Hampton um, in the uh, early 1930s, graduates from Hampton in 1934, comes to Chicago and finds that Robert Abbott's um, uh, is is ill and is is not has turned over much of the his authority at the newspaper to his attorney, a man named Nathan McGill, um, and and John Sengstack uh, discovers that Nathan McGill has not been handling the finances properly at at the newspaper, um, and he uh, intervenes and kind of seizes control of the newspaper at this young age and begins. Um, uh, uh, with the help of his uncle at this moment, although Robert Abbott, um, uh, his health continues to decline um, throughout the 30s, and John Sengstek is increasingly taking over the newspaper, so that in 1940, when, when Robert Abbott dies, it's John Sengstek at the, the tender age of 28 who, who takes over. Um, he is fought for control of the newspaper um, by his um, by Robert Abbott's widow um, and her allies. Um, and it takes him a good year and a half to, um, to re-secure control of the newspaper legally. Um, there's, a, there's an entertaining or a, a kind of um, a moment of crisis um, uh, uh, in which Robert Abbott, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, John Sengstack's younger brother, Frederick, is posted outside of a board meeting within uh, a revolver um, uh, to kind of guard against any any last minute intrusion that might upset uh, what was becoming a transfer of ownership back to John Sengstack. I call it kind of an entertaining moment because uh, uh, Fred Sengstack, the younger brother of, of John, says that the particular revolver um, involved most likely uh, it was in terrible condition. And he doesn't imagine that it would have fired if he had, if he had actually been called to use it. Uh, uh, it was really there just for show. Um, uh, but it was an incident in which um, uh, uh, there was some drama in the transfer of ownership there. Um, so John Sunstack, in his own right, um, arguably as influential as, as Robert Abbott, um, had been during the kind of first phase or first couple of phases of the defender's um, growth. And uh, one of his kind of uh, his most important um, interventions is uh, right near the start of his his reign when he helps to to found the National Newspaper Publishers Association. Um, how important was that um, in terms of attempting to unify the black press in the United States? And um, how significant was it that it was Sensdak and the Defender that was at the heart of of um, the association? It's a great question. Um, the black press was composed, of course, of individual newspapers who were rivals um, for readers nationally. Uh, the Defender for many years, the largest competitor of, of the Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier, um, uh, uh, definitely tried to become a national newspaper that that had um, uh, 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 that would try to get the same readers as the um, uh, as the Defender. It would it would actively try to to poach the readers as well as writers and columnists and and stories. They were all competitors in that way, and yet they were of course um, 
together when it came to various causes, both uh, political causes such as as uh, overtly or or kind of general political causes such as integrating the U.S. armed forces or generally defeating uh, legal segregation in the United States, um, as well as more economic causes such as opening up large advertisers and forcing them or in influencing them or persuading them to advertise in African American owned publications, which they never did and still don't today um, to uh, numbers that would be equivalent to what they would what they do in in white owned publications so they never white white owned corporations or large publicly owned corporations still do not advertise in African American publications to the extent that they do in white owned publications with similar readerships but that was something that the the um, that all of the members of the black press had in common as as a need so Robert Abbott had dreamed of um, of of bringing together the black press along these lines, um, but had never been able to accomplish it in his lifetime. There's something quite poignant that that John Sengstack was able to convene the first meeting of the of the NNPA um, on the day that Robert Abbott died. So there really was this this sense that that he was his spirit was kind of bringing together all of the all of these these publishers who could unite um, and if with Robert Abbott had still been alive, they would certainly would have called him horrible names and uh, and, and uh, abused his reputation. But in death, they were able to come together and, and reflect on everything that he had done for all of them together, because, again, he was someone who had uh, introduced modern newspaper techniques to the black press and someone who introduced black readers to the idea that newspapers could be something around which they could rally, something that could be um, both a part of, of the, the mission for, for, for civil rights or the, the, the struggle for civil rights, as well as, as something that would simply offer African-Americans a chance to communicate um, very much the way that, that social media, say, functions today. Um, and providing um, African-Americans with recognition for all of the, the quotidian uh, uh, events and accomplishments which were ignored by, by the, the rest of the media, the, the, the birthdays and uh, promotions and, and accomplishments uh, 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 of, of just a kind of regular nature. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Um, that's okay. Um, I was just going to ask, uh, kind of following up from that, and another signature uh, contribution of, of Sendstax was his decision to um, transition the Defender from from a weekly publication um, in the mid nineteen fifties into a daily uh, publication. It's kind of a, a very bold move. Um, was that, uh, in your opinion, influenced, um, you know, by kind of the developing? post-World War II civil rights movement? Uh, was that a response to perhaps increasing competition within Chicago from kind of Johnson Publishing Company or other black publishing firms on either a local or a national scale? Um, what were the reasons behind Sendstack's decision to uh, transfer to a daily format? Well, at that time, Sengstack was really the dominant player when it came to news from um, uh, providing news to an African-American readership. Uh, he had, by that moment, 
in in time defeated his newspaper rivals for um, African American readers. The Pittsburgh Courier was was no longer um, had had uh, 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 its 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 uh, longtime publisher had had passed away. Um, and it's without without him, the the leadership really, really um, uh, the newspaper kind of fizzled in terms of its ability to to get attention. And other rivals had likewise kind of faded from the scene. Um, but as you point out, uh, the Ebony Jet was was an enormous um, uh, had become an enormous an enormously profitable media enterprise um, by providing um, African-American readers with something new, um, uh, photographs and lifestyle articles and other kinds of, of, uh, of, uh, news that, um, uh, color photographs in particular that were, that were, uh, uh, showing readers that there were alternatives by the, with the civil rights movement, however, something else happened, which is that white-owned media, white-owned newspapers discovered first the importance of African-American issues and very soon thereafter the importance of African-American journalists as well as readers. Um, Once they realized that African-American readers um, could generate numbers both in terms of of, uh, uh, increasing circulation and in terms of response to advertising, um, uh, white-owned publications were very happy to try to grab up those African-American readers who were really just a new territory for them. Well, to reach those African-American readers and increasingly to report on issues within the African-American community, they also started to need um, African-American reporters. So this was a little bit, um, uh, 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 this was still on the horizon. All of this was still on the horizon in 1955, but Sengstack could see it coming. And he he knew that he was going to have to modernize his newspaper empire, which included the Defender as well as a number of other publications, if he was going to remain relevant and stay competitive. So he built a new facility for the newspaper and made it go daily so that they could compete on a day-to-day basis uh, at first on coverage of the civil rights movement. And they did do that very successfully. They were ahead of of uh, the white-owned press when it came to discovering uh, Martin Luther King, um, who um, uh, I think the Defender helped keep alive in those early days of the Montgomery bus boycott, when um, the Defender was the only national media outlet uh, covering him. And, 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 and then suddenly with the, with the arrival of, of, other, uh, of, the white-owned, of other white-owned publications, Martin Luther King was a national figure who, who was then could not be touched by the the would be um, uh, lynchers of of the South, at least not you know, not for for a few years. Um, so the the news, so there was both a political angle and an economic angle to the uh, uh, to the to the shift to to becoming a daily. Um, uh, yeah, I'll stop there and I'll I'll let you uh, uh, follow up if you'd like. Well, I was going to follow up um, just in terms of seeing this as as a as a kind of double edged sword with regards to uh, mainstream or white press mm. um, move towards kind of uh, more extensive coverage um, of the civil rights movement, and then also this kind of um, siphoning of black journalists out of black press um, 
or black publishing institutions. Uh, what kind of effect does this have on the Defender's own circulation, particularly kind of towards the late 60s and then into the 1970s? Well, circulation is impacted a little bit, but this was a question I really had to wrestle with, frankly, as a former staff member who had um, always talked in the newsroom along with, with my peers and said, oh, if only the, the, the owners, the, the cheap owners would, would do this and do this and do this, we'd be competitive with, with, the, with the Tribune and the sometimes the big daily newspapers in town. Um, and... As I was doing my research, I, fr- I came across that same conversation happening in every era of the newspaper, going back as far as I could, I could reconstruct conversations in the newsroom. So as, as far back as the 1920s, people would say, oh, if only Mr. Rabbit would do this and this and this, we could compete with the Tribune. And, and, uh, and then it was the, you know, the, uh, the Daily News. Um, and, and I had to understand as I looked at the circulation numbers, which never really were in that ballpark, in that range of those large daily newspapers, right? The Defender, when it became a daily, ranged from a high of around 50,000 a day um, to somewhere around 25, 30,000 a day when I worked there in the 1990s, right? So it never really went up that high. And at the same time, it never dropped down to the level where it was unsustainable either. And that was very important, very significant for the longevity and the, and the sustainability, actually, of, of the newspaper as, as, a, um, as an enterprise. Um, at the same time, it was never more or less than a voice of conscience in the city. In other words, the Defender was never intended, I, I realize now in retrospect, nor did it, could it be more or less than a voice of conscience. It has to have a, a kind of a broadcast at a very specific frequency. Um, and in that regard, when you read the Defender in the 1920s and compare, if you read, for example, the, the Chicago Tribune in the 1920s, you cringe as a modern person because of the level of racism and sexism and xenophobia that are just a regular part of, of, of written, um, uh, uh, of written uh, language at that, at that particular moment, right? But if you read the Defender at that time, it sounds modern because the Defender was opposed to all of those uh, 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 tendencies. And so in that respect, the newspaper never really wavered that much in terms of its circulation. That said, what your question suggests is absolutely correct, which is that the defender had to con- constantly adapt um, in, a, in, a, in a reality in which um, its writers could constantly be attracted by uh, the Sun-Times or the Tribune, or increasingly by television and radio stations, um, which were, were, were trying to get African-American journalists. So the defender, John Sengstack complained at one moment, became a training ground for those uh, publications. Um, and eventually the defender could offer, uh, couldn't even offer young African-American journalists a training ground as the Tribune and the Sun-Times and television stations became increasingly hungry for African-American talent. They would get folks right out of college and wouldn't wait for them to spend a few years in the black press. So the black press in that respect suffered from having less 
um, uh, candidates. But at the same time, you have to remember that there were no journalism schools when Robert Abbott was starting out. He had to home grow his own journalists. He had to take uh, uh, Pullman porters and um, and uh, um, uh, uh, bellhops and and um, uh, and, uh, and, and, and factory workers and make them into journalists. And, and so this was a very different, um, uh, operation in every way from, from what the defender was in its early days with the, the, the consistent, um, uh, 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 nature of the newspaper being that it was this voice of conscience throughout its, throughout its different eras. Um, just following on from that, uh, one of the things I actually um, enjoyed most about your your book is that it kind of helps to to push back a bit, or certainly complicate that kind of well established narrative of black press decline, kind of post, particularly post nine seventy, um, and you you kind of focus more on on the defenders' continued relevance and, and importance and significance, particularly um, in relation to. Uh, political figures such as Harold Washington in the 1980s. Um, to what extent is, is Chicago still seen um, or can still be viewed as that kind of capital of, of black politics um, into the 1980s? And, and what role does the defender play in that? Well, in the 1980s, Chicago um, plays a, a very much a role as uh, that it had played throughout um uh, its its history in the sense that it is still this garrison of resistance that that Frederick Douglass had envisioned Chicago uh, to be uh, back even in, as far as the 1890s. Now the 1890s were like the 1980s, an era in which rights were being rolled back. This is the era in which Ronald Reagan, um, reigning in the White House. Uh, Ronald Reagan, of course, had had launched his political, his presidential campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, um, uh, the site of the murder of of three civil rights workers not too many years earlier. The message there was unmistakable. This is going to be, if I can make an inference from from today's politics, we are going to make America great again. Um, and uh uh, this was not a message that African that was they, they were not talking about um, uh, uh, restoring African-American rights to 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 uh, uh, to when they were fully enjoyed. They were talking about rolling back African. Ronald Reagan was talking about rolling back African-American rights. Harold Washington was part of that resistance in the Congress. He very much enjoyed being part of the Democratic majority then in the House of Representatives, which was able to to be a bulwark against Ronald Reagan. And to a certain extent, what attracted him to coming back to Chicago and becoming mayor was to um, fight back um, uh, in a city um, uh, with with the whole city uh, uh, behind him. Uh, against the the so-called Reagan revolution. There's a moment in which Harold Washington is, is uh, the, the Department of Housing and Urban Development is trying to take over Chicago's public housing system. And it's, Harold Washington very dramatically came out and said, not HUD, which is the abbreviation for the, for the department, not HUD nor MUD nor anyone else is going to take over my city's housing authority. And and it's that kind of of, of resistance to... Um, a a reactionary white supremacy that that is uh, taking place that that um, 
that is very much um, uh, part of what's going on in Chicago in the 1980s. And the Defender is very much aware of this tradition. The Defender and John Sangstack are uh, there in what had become, well, Harold Washington's campaign had, of course, become this horribly racist contest in which people who had been white people who had been Democrats for generations instantly became Republicans when the nominee was an African-American. And um, that kind of, 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 of stark racial divide, the defender called out, even as, as newspapers like the, the, the Tribune became somewhat uh, muddled and a little confused in their analysis of, of this situation. It was the defender that was, again, this voice of conscience that, that, um, that called out what was happening. And it's very much what was happening in the 1980s that um, inspired a, a new generation of, of, of African-American um, po- political leaders, in particular, uh, a young activist on the South Side, a young, brash, he would say audacious activist on the South Side named Barack Obama, who, who, is, who comes to Chicago during the Harold Washington years because it's, it's this garrison of resistance and is is at first uh, tries to uh, impress the Harold uh, Washington administration with with his great intellect and ability and and uh, somewhat uh, rebuffed um, in, in his efforts to join the administration. Uh, but eventually, after he goes to law school, um, uh, when he when he which he's inspired to do to beef up his credentials, um, uh, uh, when he comes back to Chicago, it's to put political roots down in a place where he recognizes the infrastructure for African-American political achievement is in place. Chicago and uh, African-American politics in Chicago in particular are the only place that could have launched Barack Obama to the presidency. Not New York, not Hawaii, nowhere else where he might have settled could have provided him with the 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 political um, uh, apparatus that that allowed him to go to the presidency. Um, the Billiken Parade provides him uh, with an early stamp of legitimacy. Well, even earlier than that, Barack Obama's first political parade as as uh, Billiken Parade as a state senator provided him with a a. Um, full appreciation of how large. Uh, savvy and um, uh, and sophisticated the African American electorate in the city was as he marched down uh, uh, King Drive for that first parade, surrounded by a very small entourage in this election or in this in this in, the, in that particular parade. Uh, Barack Obama then, for the first time, understood just how this parade and this institution as a parade would help him. And it was, it was, uh, the first parade was the last one in which he marched without an immense entourage. And he, a few years later, worked very hard to get himself named Grand Marshal of the Billiken Parade, again, to secure that, that legitimacy, that, that stamp of approval from this all-important African-American constituency. I would argue that even this year, in this election, it was the African-American electorate on the south side of Chicago that um, uh, 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 rebuffed Bernie Sanders' campaign 
and gave Hillary Clinton that stamp of approval that is is putting her on the path to definitely put her on the path to get a Democratic nomination and put her on the the, the uh, in in shape to uh, compete um, for the presidency. Uh, we're running short of time, unfortunately, yeah. but um, that seems like a good place to uh, to draw it to a close. Just before you go, Ita, um, if you'd like to tell any of our listeners um, projects that you might be working on of interest at the moment, um, or if you have an online presence, if they can follow your work uh, elsewhere. Uh, the easiest way to get me online is through either Twitter or Facebook. Um, as long as you are an actual person, I will friend you on Facebook. Uh, it's just my my name uh, and normal spelling on, on both Twitter and Facebook, and I'm, I'm again can be reachable at, at either of those uh, social media sites. Next project, I'll be working on another book that will look at race and and history as they intersect internationally. I won't go into too much detail now, just because um, uh, the project hasn't sold, so there's no guarantee that it will actually happen until then. That's great. Um, thanks so much for joining me today, Ita. Uh, Ita Michaeli's book, The Defender, How the Legendary Black Newspaper Changed America, um, is available um, at all good bookshops now. Thanks again. Thank you so much. You've been listening to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. Support for the network is generously provided by Amherst College Press. For more information, go to newbooksnetwork.com, where you can subscribe via iTunes, or follow on Facebook and Twitter. Goodbye.